thank you for coming on. And if, if you don't mind getting started, can you explain where you came from and what it was like growing up in that country? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I came from the country of Czechoslovakia, and that's kind of a past already, uh, a distant past, because the country uh, you may know in 1992, about three years after the fall of communism, went back to being two different countries, Czech Republic and Slovakian Republic. Okay, so that's where you grew up. And what was it like growing up in that area as a child? Well, you know, as a child, um, probably uh, the things that started coming to my mind later, uh, like in middle school and high school, they were not much of an issue because I grew up in a very stable family. My parents were married for 44 years. They were the second world war generation, very hardworking people that were very conservative in their values. And while um, sort of faith and religion really was not a part of my upbringing, I kind of grew up as an atheist in this country that very much, uh, you know, the government, the communist government in this socialist country uh, was, was a part of the greater scheme of the, the whole Soviet Union uh, domination. And so they made sure that ever since, uh, certainly ever since 1968, since the invasion of the Soviets when I was six years old, uh, but even prior to that, they made sure that uh, the words like faith and, and, and God and Jesus were pretty much wiped out from, from the Czech dictionary. So uh, I certainly wasn't aware of any of, of those things. And, and uh, um, my childhood was um, sort of up to about six years of age, was very happy. But then uh, there was a sort of a landmark event for me uh, when I was a little, that there was a kind of a, almost a tragic um, accident that I went through at one of the Czechoslovakian train stations where I was wound up being buried under this pile of concrete uh, railroad pegs and, and spent a very long time in the hospital recovering and later on learning how to walk again and being labeled handicapped kid for <laughs> about three years. Uh, so that kind of shaped my life. And um, I realized that I was so much focused on all of that that was happening that it really wasn't until later, probably not until my high school years that I began to really comprehend what was going on. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, uh, you can have a happy childhood in severe circumstances when you have a loving family and, and great couple of parents that, that love you and care for you. So all that to say, you know, uh, I think that's been the foundation for me. And I would just highly place that on sort of the highest level for, for any child to really have both that and access to that kind of, that kind of circumstance uh, of life. I think uh, we cannot take that for granted, right? Wow, that's really beautiful. I mean, there's, there's a few things that caught my attention with that. So you were so distracted with your own personal accident and the trials and tribulations you were going through with that, that you couldn't exactly focus on the deterioration of the country after the invasion. Um, that being said, did you have any, do you have any memories of maybe differences between pre-invasion and post-invasion or maybe any uh, conversations between your parents? I know that when we talk to a lot of the kids or the people that were children back um, when their country started changing, they remember hearing conversations between the parents as they thought that they were quiet and having private conversations away from the kids and, and something about the tone in their voice maybe tipped them off to realize maybe something bad is going on here. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of memories, very vivid ones. Um, I remember when the invasion happened. Um, again, you know, as a six-year-old boy, um, it was kind of way above my pay grade to kind of understand, except for the personal experience with my parents. So that morning of the invasion, my mom was helping me to get dressed for preschool. And... Uh, I remember as she was listening to the radio, you know, we, we listened to the radio at that time. Television wasn't really something we had until a little bit later and that was all black and white. And so um, 
the radio was kind of like frantically announcing certain things and I wasn't really listening to it. But my mom, as she was trying to put a little jacket on me, suddenly she pressed it to her face and, and I noticed she was crying. And, and that experience in itself was sort of very strange and somewhat confusing because I've never saw my parents cry. They were tough people, just, you know, used to hard work and, and going through Second World War. They just wasn't just about anything that would throw them off. But um, I sort of grabbed her hands and, and I asked her mom, what's wrong? What's going on? And she kind of looked at me, teary eyes, and she said, son, I think it's going to be war again. It's going to be war. And uh, so that was her reaction as she is as a teenager was going through Second World War. And then here we are 20 years later and the Soviet tanks are rambling on the streets, uh, shooting at our people. Um, in the town where I lived in the, in the capital of the, of the Eastern region, you know, I was sort of in a suburb in a little town, but in the Eastern region, I heard stories, a uh, uh, story of a nine-year-old boy that was shot by the Soviet soldiers. Uh, as they were coming in because he ran into the street with a water pistol in his hands. So they just took his lifeless body and stuffed it in a trash barrel and left. And so, um, you know, that were the experiences that sort of marked for me in my little mind that there was something incredibly evil going on. Uh, not only makes my parents cry, but, but ultimately from that time on, we kind of got used to the Soviet soldiers parading our streets and uh, holding their machine guns. And, and suddenly in the second grade, uh, there was a new subject added to our education and there was Russian language. And everything began changing with education as well. Gradually, all the liberal arts like music and anything else was um, pretty much eliminated and replaced by all these political civic classes, you know, about being raised up to be a good communist citizen and all of that. So uh, uh, another memory that I have is my dad, obviously, during that time, uh, I kind of saw him. Uh, my dad was a great man, you have to know it. You know, he was uh, just a passionate man and very smart man, educated man who after 1968 never did his engineering job again. He was stuck on forced laborers in this dairy factory. Uh, I picked up a couple of summer jobs there working with my dad and I tell you, it was not um, a walk in a rosy garden, that's for sure. But my dad was a freedom fighter and a fighter in his spirit. And so he just kind of, you know, he uh, um, always tried to uh, kind of, if he could not win politically, he always tried to win sort of in his spirit, just not bending down to uh, this whole oppressive regime of communism. So he just kept fighting. And uh, during the during the night hours, at times we would listen together to the radio of that illegal broadcast called the Voice of America. <laughs> and so there was a really wow. an experience. And I like that much better than the Radio Free Europe because the free, you know, Radio Free Europe, there was kind of, there was a lot of propaganda there that was kind of pushing the people against each other and, and pushing them, you know, for some sort of a bloody revolution and all of that. Uh, which ultimately, you know, um, was probably needed at that time, but the time didn't come until 1989 when, when it was all right. And all those, you know, freedoms and everything just kind of evaporated. And we were okay. still living in there, but I, I can tell you the, the sort of the landmark of, the, of the, the march of communism and Marxism into our homes was number one, the loss of personal liberties. So after they disarmed the country, which was actually probably almost 20 years prior to that, in 1948, they, they socialized everything and they took away people's personal properties, their land. Uh, there were some real dramatic situations where the bulldozers were kind of going through the country and taking away people's fields and, and breaking the landmarks and people trying to lie down in front of the bulldozers and some of them getting killed. Um, of course, I didn't know that until later. And, uh, and then, um, you know, seeing just um, how the increasingly police state was treating our people. Um, for your young listeners, 
you know, nowadays we, we work with a lot of students as well in our organization. We have a nonprofit called Vertical Fellowship. We go to Central Europe to uh, do student exchange with, with Czech and American groups and, and then also pretty much for the purpose of um, telling people about the love of God, which um, in this post-communist states, they, they still, you know, Czech Republic is one of the most atheistic countries in the world. And so uh, the consequences of that are devastating. But, um, you know, at that time, um, I just kind of really comprehended the, uh, the evils of communism in my parents' life and then in my own life, starting in high school, when suddenly um, the high school was, the high school director was this fanatical communist man. And uh, I remember being brought to his office for no reason, where he would just spend a long time just yelling at me for no reason and, and putting my father down. And my father was in the opposition. And uh, in 1969, he somehow with a group of men burned some public, publicly some documents, uh, some communist things and whatever else. And so they're in his sort of house arrest and, you know, sort of sentenced um, to uh, the forced laborers and denied to do his engineering job and denied any public promotion. So that was kind of the way they treated people that disagreed. So, you know, just from my own experience as a little kid fighting for life during my accident time, when I saw my dad, I think that was one of our point of relating to one another that I just wanted to join him because he was a fighter as well, you know? And, and so um, until the time that I sort of fully understood what that meant, I was just more of a passive participant. But in high school, I began to be more active in that and really kind of carrying out my own local rebellions against what they were doing to us. And then I entered the National Conservatory. There is a long story with that because I was initially denied, um, you know, as a son of a non-communist, I was denied um, college education, but um, through a long set of circumstances, when I look back, I would just say the God I did not know, I didn't get to know until my 24th year of life was certainly working, even in those circumstances, sort of preparing me for what, what, what was to come. But I actually got to one of the branches of the National Conservatory, I spent the next five years studying there, studying voice and composition, and also engaging in a lot of public life. And uh, one of the things I was doing was not only singing concerts, but also emceeing a lot of concerts. And apparently I was pretty good at it. So even the faculty, the professors would take me as a student and say, hey, hey, why don't you, you know, emcee our concerts and just kind of say a few things about the compositions and composers and entertain people. And so for me, there was an opportunity to say a few things not just about the composers, but also about the situation in the country. And so gradually, I'm pretty sure my name personally, not just my family name, made it on the infamous blacklist as one who clearly is in disagreement with what's going on. And so eventually resulting in, uh, in an arrest uh, at the end of my conservatory years when I was 22 years old and uh, being put in communist prison and staying there for about almost two years and then being released into a really no chance for life kind of situation. So uh, already back in prison, I sort of plotted this elaborate escape to freedom to the West. And uh, uh, it was um, really something because at that point, my life was driven literally by hatred and uh, desire to revenge on all those people that um, hurt me and my family. Anyway, so that's sort of wow. the intro. Well, <laughs> that's quite the story. Teacher, <laughs> um, I'm glad that you kind of touched on everything because now I have some deeper questions. Uh, first of all, you briefly touched on, I love this story. You and your father would listen to the illegal radio. Can you explain why radio stations were illegal? What was the goal there? Uh, and really put it into the perspective for Americans on, on why something like that would need to happen. We see that also in other countries. We see it in communist China. What was going on there in your country? 
Well, we see it in the United States of America, you know, and those of us that have lived here have been saying this for the past 20 years. Of course, most of the response that I have gotten to that was, oh, that can never happen in America. This is America, you know, and, and yet um, it's been happening here. And now we have the same thing, except it's not necessarily illegal, um, but the, the forces that are in control that are sort of embedded with uh, China and, and Marxism and communism, globalism now, obviously, you know, it's not just Central Europe, but it's a global scale assault. Um, those are the forces that uh, will do to you what they did to me a few times, you know, when I raised my voice and sort of pointed out that I'm having a deja vu in the American freedoms now being taken away. So I was deplatformed. And so there is censorship, right? And so if you want to listen to something or publish something, it's denied to you. And so that's sort of the precursor of uh, what is really coming our, uh, you know, down, down the pike our way if we are not careful uh, because uh, we are just about this close to uh, uh, everything turning around and America as we know it to be uh, lost forever. It's, uh, remember in my country it took 43 years to get sort of the freedom back, but it's not really the freedom of what they used to have. You know, it's another socialist state that is controlled by different parties that may not be called communist, but are very much in line with that philosophy. Yes, and I, I try and get people to understand here in America too, that there's so much more than just direct propaganda or indirect propaganda and indoctrination, like what we see from the mainstream media, what we see in our curriculum in our schools. There's also this form of censorship just by limiting and restricting access to information. And I, I we see that with the distortion of the algorithms with, I know some people where you can search their entire social media handle letter for letter, and their name does not come up until you hit search. And for other people, you can put the first two letters of their handle and it pops right up and says, here you go, sure. go follow them. And so sure. it's those little tiny ways. And it's like the private companies are doing the bidding, the dirty work of the state, of the leftist state that we have here in America. Yep. Um, the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, we heard this with someone, we recently interviewed a really wonderful woman who escaped communist China and went through the labor camps, has an amazing story. Story. Um, but she also talked about how if you weren't a member of the party, if you weren't seen as a favorable person to the party, you really couldn't advance in life. And so you had a freedom fighting father. Did you worry about that as you were as you were coming of age, as you were trying to get into a profession, trying to provide for yourself, becoming an adult? Um, what kind of trials and tribulations did you face in that way if you had a member of the opposition in your family? Right. Um, that was that that's a classic you know just we make your life miserable uh, if you disagree with us and uh, so there was no advancement and my my father was a very educated man and uh, i already mentioned that he never did his job again until after his retirement when they finally said sir you know if you could work for a couple more years and come to the factory and and fix all the machines that you invented for us and all the patents that we stole from you and all of that you know but he was essentially a factory worker you know and and they said okay you work 12 hours a day in a bad environment uh, for uh, much less pay and um, by the way the five years prior to your retirement will be the average you know when we take uh, for your pension. And so my dad decided that he said, you know what, I'm going to work 16 hours a day and I'm going to work with excellence and I'm going to encourage people and I'm going to up my average, you know, so that that was sort of his way of, and he was an amazing human being. So I saw that strife in his life, you know, and, and uh, I also saw, you know, how, how hard they tried to make him not succeed, which also included the, the um, oppression and, and, and sort of the denial of promotion for me and my brothers. I have two older brothers, they're still there. And uh, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, when everything changed in 1989, my, the younger of the two brothers, they're both older, he was this obscure classical guitar teacher in one of the larger schools for the arts. And after the Velvet Revolution in November of 19, <coughs> 1989, they got about 100 people on the faculty together and they said, 
okay, we are going to elect the new director for our school. And the first, and the, you know, the first condition for that will be that that person would have never been involved in the Communist Party or any of the affiliate parties. And out of the 100 faculty members, there was only one young man that has never been involved. It was my brother. So at the age of 29, he was elected to be the director of this, but now is the largest arts and music school in the country. You know, and so that's how much the caution and the hatred for all these communist leaders was like, we don't want anything else to do with it. And it's kind of ironic that after now, you know, 20, 20 something years, the young people that we work with, there was sort of a paradigm shift where through their education and sort of the whole atheistic bring, you know, bringing them up in that sort of school environment and everything. As these students, we bring a lot of groups, a lot of music groups uh, to the United States and, and all these students are staying with our families and with my family and, and we talk to them. And about five, six years back, you know, all these teenagers and the 20 year old college students, they started saying, communism, what is that? That's my grandmother's story, you know, and they became just as ignorant to what is going on as the young people in the United States. And so I'm, I'm glad and grateful for your program that uh, gives voice to some of the older guys like me, you know, that have sort of experienced that and can warn young people if they take heed and, and, and just really uh, pay attention to uh, and learn from the history. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. And we're, we're just thankful that you guys even want to give us an hour of your time to talk. I know that you're very busy and you, you have so much going for you. Uh, we're really inspired. There's a study from Michigan State University. And when we were first starting the organization, we found it and it said the most effective way to reach a young person with a hard to understand topic or with an opposing viewpoint, or even just with a topic that they need to deeply comprehend and not just memorize for a test. They have to understand why it matters to them and the world around them. It's actually most effectively told to them via a peer, not via a parent or a professor. And so we decided what if we interviewed people like you that could talk in a very casual and heart to heart way about the stories and pass it down in that peer to peer style. So that's really what drives us. And, and just based on the trajectory of the podcast, I think we're doing a great job with that and it's slowly growing. Um, so when you, I, I think a lot of people don't understand like, the idea of force versus choice. Can you explain how you are told what you will be doing as a worker under the government in a situation like this, how you can't just grow up and say, I would like to become a musician one day, or I would like to pursue this career. It's, it's very much decided for you. What was that like for you with that process? Correct. So, um, it's, you know, when I was in high school and, and sort of finishing high school and like, what do I do with my life now? Some of the hardest decisions young people make elsewhere, you know, to pursue college education or to go on and maybe start a business. Those choices are not really like, that is not your concern. If it is your concern, um, then you are very much talked out of it. You know, they will tell you openly and say, look, I mean, you are a part of the collective. And so you cannot just decide for yourself what you want to be or what you like to do. And that because for the collective, we need to sort of implement into your life the needs that we have. And so... Um, there, were, there were a lot of subjects that the, the kids would like to study, but um, only very, very few spots because, you know, the, the, the communists were not really in favor of higher education. Um, a lot of the kids really didn't even go to high school. They would go to what they called sort of the technology training for three years, you know, after they got out of nine years of elementary school. And then they would just go straight through factories and work. And, and uh, the kids that went to high school, um, you know, it was sort of the minority. In my case, it was kind of interesting because I was actually um, tested, um, you know, in, in various ways of both physical training and sort of the mental abilities and everything. And I suppose um, my whole fight for survival when I was a little child, you know, with the accident and also learning how to walk and sort of the mental toughness and everything kind of, I guess, in some way, you know, all these circumstances that I now believe God created in my life, some of the suffering, individual suffering sort of 
predestined me for scoring very high on those scales. And so um, there was a sort of a survey done and, and testing about 600 kids, you know, in the whole region. And then they selected like 12 boys from the whole, almost half a country to go into this experimental military, more military-minded class of the high school. So I went from the eighth grade and I remember doing ninth grade in six weeks during the summer, you know, and, and we were sort of this experimental class where there was six of us out of the 12 boys. There's about 22 girls and six boys. It's a good ratio for a young man. Uh, <laughs> so we, uh, we were tested and about six of us were really gifted athletes and, and about six of the boys were really insanely gifted um, just brainiacs you know there were some guys that were just doing algorithms top of their head and other guys that were just so knowledgeable in physics and chemistry and so and uh, and then we received all of this special training so i went through four years of that training <clears throat> in that high school that i mentioned with that fanatical director and studying all these subjects and uh, a lot of that was also in my case uh, sort of the, the survival and military competitions athletic competitions um, I was heavily involved in decathlon and eventually made it to the junior representation in our team. And, and, and so all of these things, again, when I look back, just became very instrumental in me then surviving the whole prison experience uh, because that, um, you know, there was, anyway, we can get to it at some point. Back to your question about, so, so there is sort of three or four steps. So first you are sort of asked and the appeal is made to your collective awareness you know, like this is what your country is doing for you. And that's the direction that we're going because, you know, Karl Marx and, and, and Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and, and Bertrich Engels and all of those, they just aligned it for us and we are sticking with that direction. And, and here is your little place and you have to kind of pull the same direction and you go like, oh, wait a minute, that's not my direction. You know, I got dreams. I got um, some hopes in life and, and I want to be an artist, you know, or I want to be this and that. And so I was sort of destined to be really a military officer with all of that experience. And, uh, once, you know, I saw how they treated my father and experienced my own personal sort of experiences in persecution in high school and all that, I just decided I'm not going to serve them. So when I was, um, about, almost 19 years old, I made the first adult decision in my life and wanted to pursue the arts. And it was really miraculous how I got into this new branch of the National Conservatory because I was kicked out of the auditions in the, in the Prague Conservatory. But then, I don't know for what reason, one of, the, um, one of the ladies that bore the title of the National Communist Artist, <laughs> you know, she kind of stopped me on the way out and grabbed my elbow and says, Mr. Schust, uh, we see your talent for music, and obviously you're not going to be accepted in this school. You know the reasons. But I am going to recommend, and I'm going to make sure you're going to get accepted in a new branch of our conservatory where we're kind of looking for talent, and that's close to where you live, you know, in the large city. So I'm going to call them right now, and, and we will transfer you and consider your audition, and just, just don't ask any question, don't say anything, and just let it play out. And so... Miraculously, I was accepted to the conservatory and my life really changed there because I suddenly started doing what I loved and what I wanted to do, um, even though I was still heavily involved in all kinds of sports and different things, but no longer in a professional way and stopped competing and then started competing more in the music field. And it was really, I would say, despite all of that, probably the five happiest and most productive years that I lived there and also my friendship with my father was just so solidified because my dad kind of vicariously lived out his dream he was a very good saxophone player and flute player he was when he was young he was actually in a boarding school in, in an army as a as an army band soldier you know and he played there and, and then when Hitler took over uh, before the war um, the army the Czechoslovakian army was dismissed there was none and we were sort of sold out to the Nazis in exchange for no bombing, which really didn't play out that well anyway. And, uh, and eventually, you know, the country was never quite free. Um, so, you know, a few short years of trying to figure out who we are and suddenly the Soviets took over in 1948, the nationalization, and then 1968, 
when there was a coup that wanted to bring the country back toward more the democratic way of life, you know, most of these opponents were put in prison. Speaking of prison, during that time when I was in prison, I found out that um, there was uh, around 700,000 adults in prison running. And this is a country of 10 million men, women, and children, so about 5 million adults. Imagine close to 20% of these people were in prison. You know, and they were running all the uh, heavy industrial productions, car productions, coal mining. The political prisoners were usually on the uranium mines where the, most of them contract, you know, got cancer from the radiation and died. And so um, it was really amazing to see this little country, you know, embedded into the whole Eastern system you know, in the chain of like, say that we make the wagons for the subway. So the brakes were made in Russia and the body of the wagon was made in Bulgaria. And, and then, you know, the rubber parts were made in Poland and then in Czech Republic, we made the wheels. It just tells you, you know, this whole restriction about, oh, we would like to make the wagons. It was like, no, no, that's the Bulgarians. We assign it to them. So you can imagine how the production, once, once one little part became crippled, the whole system collapsed. That was in 1989, when finally the Americans prevailed in this so-called you know, Cold War, right? When we economically, I say we now, we Americans, economically have sort of outbid and outperformed the whole communist bloc of the mighty mother Russia. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so then as we talk about 1989 coming up, how old were you? You said you were 22 when you got thrown in prison. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So what year was that? If you don't mind me asking. It was 1986. Okay. 1984. Wow. So right sorry, before. 1984 to 86, I was in prison. And then 1986, I escaped to the United States after that. Wow. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about that. What was it like? Did you know that you were going to be arrested? Were you scared or were they coming at you? Did they have an actual crime that you had committed or what's going on here? Because a, a phrase that we hear a lot in America today is that they will find a crime to charge you with, that's, whether you did it or not. <laughs> was that the case? You are very well aware of, of how they do it, right? <laughs> and, and what goes into it. Yeah. When there is a no crime, when there is no crime, we can, we can manufacture, you know, and manufacture witnesses. So let me say this. So Imagine a country where 3.7 million adults are registered informants for the Communist Party. All right, so then another seven to 800,000, we don't even know the exact number, are in prison. And then the rest of us are just trying to live our lives uh, in, in a way of decency and, and, and sort of reaching out you know, humanely to people and loving them and, and just kind of being friends. Um, and, and so, you know, you like really a minority there. So, so that's, that's the situation. So you don't really know who to trust, who to talk to at, at any given time. Here's how it works. At any given time, one of your neighbors can go and report on you. Like, he's not wearing the mask. I'm just kidding. That wasn't really the issue at that time, right? But that was the encouragement. You need to report on them, you know, because, you know, you are the, the, the good citizens and they are not. All right, they disagree with us, they're not. And even if they agree, just like, so at any given time, there'll be a number of people going you know, to the local police stations and saying, and so once the accusation was made, they would discern the, the weight of the accusation. They would also discern who the person is that is getting accused. If it was one of theirs, they would maybe dismiss it and would be obviously a lot of bribery involved in that and favoritism. But if it was one of ours, you know, one of the opposition, then they would make sure that they would first try to convince you, you know, then try to persecute you. And then if it didn't work, they would just arrest you and they would fabricate a case. So I went through all of those phases and I guess, you know, the, the young artist that I was and just kind of living out, you know, my passion and, and, and living sort of the happy side of life, not trying to worry much about what they approve and what they don't approve. I was kind of naive in that. I just, I guess, thought, and I wasn't very smart either. I have, you know, I mentioned my two brothers. They had for years, about 12 years or so, they had one of those, one of the most popular stand-up come act 
you know, that was that was every Friday night. They had this country music group, and they wrote these scripts and four-hour shows, and and packed crowd of people. And they were doing all of those double-meaning jokes about the governments, and they were called on the carpet to explain them. But they got away with it because there was comedy, and they would always kind of explain it. And they were, but I was sort of the, I guess, like my dad. You know, he always spoke his mind, and it got him into trouble and where he was, and so. I just somehow, you know, being my father's son, I would just kind of speak out, open my mouth. And I would also delight in doing things that they would dislike. So for example, around Christmas time, which there was like totally like a secular holiday, much like in the United States now for the most part, right? The commercialization and all that, but it was still a holiday. And uh, I remember that, you know, in the mountains and in sort of secluded areas, people would sing the Christmas carols still, and we would sing them more like the historical part, you know, this is the part of the past, and it's kind of cute, we have the Christmas tree, and one of the most famous Czech Christmas carols is this beautiful medieval song, and the words go, Jesus Christ is born today, hallelujah, that's the first line, and, and everybody sort of knows that, they just kind of sing it, and, uh, you know, part of the culture, but in the schools, we could not sing that. Well, when uh, I had a little orchestra at the conservatory and, and all of us were sort of these young, ambitious artists, you know, winning all these national competitions. And, and so we got to travel around the country and doing all these educational concerts as students for elementary schools. Well, somebody had to emcee those concerts. And, and so, at the end of the concert, you know, I would always, you know, like during the Christmas time, we would do like 30 concerts in two weeks. It was amazing. And we would just love that. You don't have to go to school, you know, and just go out and perform. And uh, during the day, and and I would just step up in front of these audiences of, of these kids, you know, seven, 800 kids in these auditoriums and just say, well, according with the tradition of our country, let's all sing today, Jesus Christ is born today, hallelujah. And I had no idea what that meant, but I just knew that the communists are really going to get picked off. And, and so, you know, like, hey, let's just get them, you know, because of the things they're doing to us. And there were complaints written to the director of the conservatory at times, but it was interesting because he was a very high ranking uh, senator. And it was one of those things when he was not in a communist party, but he was in another party, which was communist as well, just bore a different name. And he was very protective of me, you know, because the school got represented. And so he kind of dismissed them and he arbitrarily just, he just here and there, he would talk to me and says, just, just make sure you keep your mouth shut. Just don't push the envelope, you know? And I just never quite paid attention to it too much. And so I remember when I got in prison, I appealed to him and to our sort of naively sort of anticipated friendship with this man uh, who was director of our conservatory and senator in the non-communist party. And lo and behold, he just said, I don't know this end, you know? And so it was like when his own skin was on the line, that was it, that was the end of like, oh, I got a talented student that I need to protect. So anyway, so those are some of those, you know, ways of how it all worked and uh, in my case there was an accusation made one day I was a uh, there was a couple of men in trench coats that came um, into our house uh, at like 4 30 in the morning and woke us up and that wasn't the first time you know they just kind of come in they raid your house they ask questions they sometimes you have to go to the police station and just kind of and my mom I remember asked one of them, says, so um, should, I, should I pack him lunch? You're taking him with, with you, referring to me as the youngest son, you know? And, and they said, oh, don't worry, Mrs. Shoes, he'll be back for lunch. Well, I was back for lunch, but it was almost two years later. And uh, so <clears throat> let me explain how it works in communism, at least how it worked in our country, right? So according to the law, of the communist Czech Republic, which I became very familiar with. The one thing they actually give you when you are in prison, they give you the law book of all the laws. Because, you know, like you need to make your defenses here. Is, and so and so we did, you know. Of course, they ignore the law, even if it's written down. 
So the law, for example, said that if there is an accusation that the district attorney has the right to book you and then put you away for up to 28 days in what they call the isolation process. So they would isolate you in this hideous place. There was a prison, uh, but they would call it the isolation building. That's where you go before your sentence, essentially. And, and then they said, don't worry about anything. You know, here is an accusation that's against you. And, and say, what accusation? And say, oh, well, we cannot say, you know, because um, there is one. And so we are, we have an obligation to investigate that. And uh, we are going to now work for up to 28 days. They kind of let you know, like, this is how long we're going to keep you away from the society, isolated, so that you would not be influencing potential witnesses. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and they said, well, we are going to work on making the case against you based on the accusation, but also for you, you know, in case that you're innocent, we really want to make a case for you. Of course, there was nobody that was working for you. And so during the isolation, I remember I, the first night I really didn't sleep, like wondering what happened. You know, I'm in this dirty cell, there is a hole in the ground, you know, where you go to the bathroom and there is a faucet above it where you can get a little, you know, tap water and that's about it. So they keep you there, you're hungry. And, uh, and then next day they move you to a cell where in the isolation there, are, there were three or four individuals in this little cell. When I opened my arms, I could touch both walls. It was a little cell, you know, about 10, eight by 10 feet. And there you are put with a couple of gypsies, you know, a couple of tattooed men that look really scary at that time. Tattoos were kind of like, not like today, you know, they were like the sign of like, okay, only criminals have them. And, uh, and, and you're there. And the first thing that happened when the door closes, this, this young man comes up to me with the tattoos and he goes, so from now on, I get your bread and I get your drink. And if you, if you don't comply, I'm going to cut your head off. And so he like goes like this and, and out from his mouth, he pulls out this shaving blade, you know, that he was hiding under his tongue. And I'm like, whoa. And so like, you know, that kind of makes you scared and everything. And, and so the whole night I'm not sleeping and, and just kind of, I could feel physically this depression setting. And all of that is done so they can break. So that during the time of isolation, you report yourself and go like, I will sign anything, just let me out. And so I am there in the morning, you know, I'm just kind of like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm all sleepy. And, and suddenly all of that that they taught me, you know, all these sort of survival skills and all that just come to my mind and just the spirit just says, you know, inside, just fight. Remember who you are, just fight. This is like, they're not going to win. And so, you know, I got down on the ground to make some push-ups and threw a few punches against the wall and a few kicks. And then I turned around and I see these guys kind of huddling in the corner and the guy who had the blade just kind of looking at me and I could see fear in his eyes. They would teach us how to spot fear in people's eyes because the whole country runs on fear. And so I, I looked at him and he stands up, comes to me and says, from now on, I will give you my bread and I'll give you my drink because we just agreed you need to be the king of this cell. Well, then I enter into this hierarchy of, you know, that, that every cell has a king and the kings have the king, you know, in the prison. And there is just somehow through the... Um, communication process it all like the worst guy is like among the prisoners get so I was suddenly you know appealed to my sinful nature and very quickly realized that the whole prison is run on fear both among the prisoners and with the guards and lo and behold then about 10 o'clock the little door opens you know in the door and there is a piece of paper it gets thrown in well my new tattooed friend picks up the paper because he has his name on it and he's kind of looking at it and it appears to be a court paper. And, and I'm looking at, you know, and he says, uh, can you read? And, and, and so apparently hardly any of them could read. So I picked it up and see that it's his course paper that also included his criminal history. And you know what? He said he killed seven people and, and all of that. And he didn't kill anybody. This was a guy who stole two bags of coffee and he was a registered informant. And his task was to scare the newcomers so that they will be broken and essentially sign whatever they want to sign. And so I got so angry and all that anger just started welling up. And uh, as much as I sort of swore in my own soul, I will not become 
what they want me to become, I know, you know, looking back that I became much worse than they could have ever made me because of the hatred that was inside of me and all that desire to really avenge and, and to be the man that kind of escapes to the West and driven by that, you know, and then changes his name, changes his identity and comes back a few years later unrecognized and takes revenge and, and drastic revenge. I, I sent out 10 letters to people before I left, uh, to people that hurt me and my family swore to kill them. And so it was, you know, to my shame, that was sort of the, the whole objective, the goal of my life that was driving me forward as a young man. Fortunately, Christ intercepted my way during the escape, which was just an amazing thing. Wow, okay, so then let's talk about that a little bit. What did the escape look like? How long were you in the prison versus how long did it take to plan everything and to implement the action? I, uh, I, was, in, I was in isolation. The isolation is legal for 28 days. And in, in case of extreme crimes, according to the law, the district attorney can extend the isolation for another 28 days. I was in the isolation for seven months and remained unbroken until the sentencing and uh, I was sentenced to three years, uh, labeled an, a social element. And essentially, uh, um, then ironically, because I guess at that time, there was a spot that opened in the isolation building for a man that would be able to read and write and, and do sort of administrative work. I was actually put in the isolation building, three floors underground into the intake. So my job for the next 15 months or so was to take in the accused, which were, you know, strip of their name and identity, assign a number. So you'd be accused, you know, my number was 0462. And uh, so you'd be accused number so-and-so, and then I would process between 15 to 20 people every day. And that included taking all of their possessions. I would block them in these little cages, you know, under heavy guards, and I would strip them down. They had to shave their entire body. Uh, I would work only with men um, and shave their entire body and sort of process them and register every little item they brought in and then uh, give them these hideous sort of warm-ups and these shoes that were these, had these wooden, <laughs> wooden soles on them that when you walk in them, it sounds like a bunch of horses, you know, because obviously you would make a lot of noise. They would want to know exactly where you are uh, if you try to escape or something like that. So, and then um, in the afternoon, we would be processing people that would be sentenced and then sent out to prisons. So it'll be a constant work, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. And I've seen some things there, you know, at times, I remember this young mother, that was processed. And uh, while I wasn't processing women, I remember when they brought them in and then they separated them, you know, men and women, she came in and I was still processing her paperwork, even though there were women prisoners that were kind of processing her physically. And she was a woman from Poland and had a picture there of her and her husband, two little children. And apparently she forgot to declare while crossing the border it, it, uh, you know, on some international business, forgot to declare two packs of cigarettes. And she was accused by some informant or some jealous, you know, smoker there. On She was accused of smuggling. And uh, um, a couple of nights later, she committed suicide. She slit her wrists. And uh, I was, you know, woken up in the middle of the night and came in and had to clean up the mess. So, it, it, you know, things like that happened there. Uh, people hung themselves and people killed themselves in some ways. And a lot of them went insane. I've seen people that were brought in, they were educated engineers or doctors and accused of something and, and brought in. And then throughout the, the process and everything, you know, within 28 days, I mean, some of them literally went insane. Just went insane. Physically, you would see that and they just lost their mind. And so it was, it was obviously very difficult. And so I was blessed to have found out through the whole prison machinery that there is a place somewhere in that building that is called the medical cell. The one thing that they allowed the prisoners to do was to smoke because they, you know, they didn't want, they wanted to calm down and everything. And so and if they didn't have cigarettes, they smoked about everything they could get their hands on. 
um, you know, wrapped up in a paper and, and just, um, so I was just dying. I mean, this little cell and you have three or four men that are just smoking nonstop. They smoke everywhere. The smell was just hideous. And so I said, how do I get out of here? Is there, and is there a non-smoking place? And they said, well, there is only one that is called the medical cell. It's like, how do I get there? I am not sick. And they say, well, why don't you go down? We have this doctor. There was a prison doctor who was 86 years old, affectionately nicknamed Dr. Mengele. He was both the doctor and the dentist. There was only one procedure that he did when somebody had a toothache. You know what that was, right? Just ripping the teeth out. And, and, and so it was like, this man was a psychopath, but um, they say, here is how it goes. You go in there and say to him that you have headaches and he will put you on the medical cell because usually that's where people are put for withdrawals when they have headaches, when they were like doping up or when they, and so sure enough, he said, and as soon as you tell him that my headaches are over, they put you back into the general population. I was like, well, I guess I'll have headaches from now on. And, and so I actually spent the first week in this regular cell, then I kind of got into the medical cell through this lie and eventually spent the next seven months in at least smoke-free environment. You know, and, and that's where I met um, a friend who was a, a guy that was in a national representation for rock climbing, for speed climbing. And we struck this friendship later on after all this was over and I was here and he was still there. I led him to Christ, um, you know, through these messages and uh, little cassette tapes and everything. But um, he was the one that drew me some maps when he used to climb in the uh, Italian Dolomites between Italy and Yugoslavia. And so my task was to plan this escape where I would sort of sneak my way into Yugoslavia, which was another communist country. So you could technically, you could travel. Again, it's a long story how it all happened. I literally lied my way out of the country. I was able to delay my own papers out of prison because I was in the administration and then use my brand new passport that had no, no um, record you know, at that time to obtain a permit to travel to Hungary and then sneak to Yugoslavia. And from there, Yugoslavia never had iron curtain. So I would go from the backside and cross the Alps, you know, climb through the Alps to get over to uh, Austria through free world. And even with that, I was caught the first time I tried that. It's a long story again, but it's an, an amazing story, miraculous story, but uh, that's what it took, you know, and then uh, while I was in Austria, um, that's where somebody gave me the Bible to read, and I wanted to read it at first only because I knew it was the number one book on the list of forbidden literature in communism. I was like, I don't know what's in it, why they hate it so much, and started to read it from page one. And then, you know, when I got to like the book of Leviticus, it kind of stopped being interesting. And so I set it aside. And this man who gave me the Bible, who was a believer, just came back and he kind of followed up, said, are you still reading? I said, no, you know, it's just all that mumbo jumbo. And he says, you need to read that New Testament. I was like, what's the New Testament? He says, it was written for us, Gentiles. I was like, what is Gentiles? He said, just read the book. It's the story of Christ in the New Testament. You know, he died for us. Who was Christ? He said, read the book. So I went upstairs in my little Alpen Inn where I lived in hiding, you know, waiting for my green card to the United States. And I opened the book, found in the content, the New Testament, began to read the Gospel of Matthew. And, and I just couldn't get away from it. And there in the middle of this afternoon in July of 1986, God revealed himself to me from the pages of the word of God. And the whole room just changed color. It was like this silver tone. And, and while I did not hear any voices, I, I knew I was not alone in that room. And I guess that's why I have so much passion for the word of God and eventually became a pastor, music pastor and preaching pastor for the past 15 years. Um, while we still have a lot of singing ministry in our lives, you know, I just really delight in, in just proclaiming the word of God, because that's how I came to Christ. There was just the word of God, the presence of God, and this young, sinful, perverted, mind, re revenge-driven man that God just really wanted to change and save. And that's exactly what happened. So, Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. I, I find it very, very special that pretty much everybody we have interviewed 
especially the, the harder stories. It's not like we search out stories of people that end up talking about God, but it just so happens that every survivor person that we end up interviewing talks about God at the end and talks about how that was really um, what got them through or what got them through their transition after they escaped. And it's, it's quite special when you start to realize it because every time I sit down, it's, it ends up getting to this kind of discussion. So I, I would love, I hope we can have one of our editors like chop up all the interviews where somebody mentions it and, and the point that it came into their lives. Um, I would love, first of all, to have you on for another episode where we just talk about your escape. That would be quite interesting. I feel like that could be its own hour. Um, ben, I know you're very busy, so I don't want to take up too much of your time right now. But if we could close out with with you telling us what kind of work did you get into? You you briefly touched on it, but what are you doing and and how can we all connect with you and connect with your work today and, and support you or whatever, anything that you need from us? We would love to stay connected with you. And I'm sure a lot of listeners want to look more into what you do. Wow. Well, thank you so much. You know, first of all, I appreciate you saying that, I, you know, I'm busy and, and I am busy, but this is what we do when we are busy, right? We just go and we encourage other people and we tell them about what, what we have experienced and, and that there is hope and, and then there is God that loves them. And, and so um, if we can keep busy with that, you know, there is always, always room for wonderful young people that are doing this tremendous uh, really ministry for the American youth and the American people to uh, remind them that uh, freedom is, um, is costly. It just sounds like an oxymoron, but it is costly and, and it needs to be preserved and fought for. Um, so as far as what I do right now, so we uh, about almost a year ago moved to Florida during the pandemic, we were in Missouri and I was pastoring there for 18 years. It was kind of interesting because I've been a pastor for 31 years and I quit the opera career. I was singing the opera, you know, in, in the Boston area at first. And I got my doctorate at the Boston University. Another amazing story, just how it all happened. And, and then God would just kind of really direct me. I'm talking about having no choice. When you just really think about it, the way that it was orchestrated, like I really didn't ask to be a pastor. I had sort of my idea about how, you know, I would like music to be a part of my life. And I always wanted to be a college professor and had all these dreams. And I can tell you after the Lord just kind of redirected my life. And when I began following, all of those dreams came to fruition anyway. And, but it just wasn't a priority. I eventually became an adjunct faculty at Missouri Baptist University for about seven years, but that was not really where I was serving. So uh, we have launched this uh, new organization that is kind of like a church, but it's not really a Sunday morning church. And I suppose that with the circumstances of the pandemic or, the, you know, um, I kind of see a, a paradigm shift a real change that I believe is going to become more, more, more and more rampant. And that is, you notice how, how easy it was for the world governments really, because this is a global event, not just our government, the world governments to, in the name of the religion of public health, to shut down, not just churches, the primary churches, right? but also other institutions and, and really businesses and everything else, you know, and obviously now we're learning that there are other options and maybe it's not all black and white. And, and there is, so yeah, I write a lot about that when I write, but as far as um, what we do, um, you know, for years we've been trained as pastors that you have to gather people into one place, the church, they come and that's where you do your life together. Well, uh, my post two, two weeks ago was called, what if God took your church building away? Well, that's exactly what happened. And uh, when I look at the end time prophecy, I think that's probably gonna happen again. And so our concept is a little bit different. We have a team of people and rather than bringing people to one place, we have one team and we go to many places wherever people worship God. And so we just came from Maine this past weekend. There was a group of people are trying to plant the church. Uh, next week, we are in, in some other place. And then in three weeks, we're going back to Europe to the Czech Republic, you know, doing some teamwork and all that. And so, you know, we just kind of, 
when they shut us down again, we want to be able to still go to the people and bring all of that we bring, which is the gospel, first of all, and then worship, music, and teaching. So that's our ministry. It's called Vertical Fellowship, based on 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 3. We proclaim what we have seen and heard, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship with, with the Father and, and His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's the verse. It's vertical with the Father and His Son. So that's what we bring to people as a team. And uh, you can find us on either just kind of try to type in Vertical Fellowship. And, and if it doesn't come up, our real website uh, address is wegovertical.org. Awesome. Well, we will definitely uh, link those in the bio and the description and everything and promote those to our team. And, and thank you so much, Michael, for your time. We would love to have you back on for another episode to talk about some of the more intricate parts of your story, like the escape, but we will share this with everyone and we will um, be really, really excited to hopefully hear from you again. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a blessing. Thank you.